Welcome to Revolutionize Your Retirement Radio, bringing you insights and strategies to help you create a magnificent and fulfilling second half of life. Here's your host, certified professional retirement coach and best-selling author, Dr. Dorian Mincer. I want to welcome everybody to my fourth Tuesday Revolutionize Your Retirement interview with expert series. I'm Dory Mincer, owner of Revolutionize Retirement and your host for today. And I'm so delighted that Richard Leiter is our guest today. Richard Leiter is an internationally best-selling author and coach. He's the founder of the Adventure, the Purpose Company, where the mission is to help people to unlock the power of purpose and answer that question. He's ranked by Forbes as one of the top five most respected coaches. Along the way, Richard's written 11 books, including three bestsellers, which have sold over a million copies. The Power of Purpose and Repacking Your Bags are considered classics in the personal growth field. And as I mentioned before, his latest book, Who Do You Want to Be When You Go Up?, is a defining book on the power of purposeful aging, and it's due out in July. Uh, Richard's widely viewed as a pioneer of the global purpose movement, and his work's been featured in many media sources, and he has a PBS special, The Power of Purpose, which was viewed by millions of people. His purpose message to all 50 states, Canada, and four continents, and he's advised everybody from AARP to the National Football League to the U.S. State Department. During his career, he's addressed more than 2 million people worldwide in speeches to corporate, association, and social service groups. He and his wife, Sally, live in the Minneapolis, Minnesota area. So, Richard, I am so delighted you're here. I met you years ago at Positive Aging Conferences and then actually part of a workshop that you did here in Boston. And I read your books and just you're the guru of purpose. (laughs) You've been a coach, you know, for like really long before it became popular. So I wanted to start with just how did you discover your own calling to get into this, this field? Well, thank you, Dorian. It's a privilege and a pleasure to be with you on this, and thank you for the nice intro. Yeah, I, in my uh, former life, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, I was a uh, HR, used to be called personnel, but I was uh, like the number two person in uh, HR in what is now U.S. Bank, used to be called First Bank. But I had what is now called a side hustle because I was being trained in counseling psychology, I my side hustle was called Lunch Hour Limited. You bought me lunch on your career over lunch. And this was separate from my day job. And so and I had a booming practice that built because people way back then didn't really have guidance like they might have now and books like they might have now. So Lunch Hour Limited became basically my my calling. I had an 80% success ratio. 80% of the people that I coached quit, quit, meaning they went back to their job or they left the organization. But very few actually, Dory, left. They went back and had a conversation like they'd never had before with their supervisor or their, their boss and, uh, and, some, and moved within the organization and readmitted their jobs. And I found that I was so fulfilled doing that that I spent my evenings working on it and decided that I would try to make this my calling so to, so to speak and but I had one more step and that was I applied for a Bush fellowship and Bush is a local organization Archibald Bush mm-hmm. is the founder of 3M company and it's called a mid-career fellowship and I got a mid-career mm-hmm. fellowship at the age of 29 
and so it wasn't exactly midlife or 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 mid career. But I, I apprenticed myself to the Harvard Study of Adult Development, which at that mm. time was totally unknown to the public. And I learned a lot about what I didn't know about adult life and came back and uh, hung out my shingle and started coaching and doing workshops in church basements and anybody <laughs> anywhere that I could. And uh, the rest is history. Wrote my first book in 1978 wow. called The Inventurers, in, uh, Excursions in Life and Career Renewal. So I have been a coach for a long time. Yeah. But it's, it's morphed into, you know, a broader platform than coaching, uh, obviously with writing and speaking and uh, seminars and other other projects. What a wonderful, exciting kind of way of of moving into your calling, really, and really becoming this entrepreneur and thriving and blossoming in your own way. It's beautiful. Well, so, and, and, well, so many, so yeah. many people, as you know very well, their career chose them. They didn't choose it. Right. They got into it because someone said, oh, you would be good at math. You should do this or you should do that. And, and uh, all of a sudden they get to a certain age or stage where they realize this isn't, this is a job or maybe even a career. And I've been successful, but I'm not fulfilled. How can I, do I have to do this my whole life? So we see many people, you know, the distinctions between job, career and calling are well known, I think, to many people on this Call, but I, I think so many people way back then and today yearn for something that is success with fulfillment, purpose and a paycheck, not either or. Exactly. And you've been a pioneer in this purpose movement, you know, for for most of this time then. So maybe tell us about it. What for you and for us, what is purpose? You know, how should we think about it? And how do we deal with purpose in such a time of uncertainty that we're in right now with COVID? Yeah, the purpose <laughs> movement is in some ways parallel to the longevity revolution. Because in 1947, the average age that people are, excuse me, in 1900, the average age that people lived to was age 47. Now the fastest growing cohorts are 85 and over and Many, many, many people living longer. And so half of purposeful aging and, and the longevity revolution are, are are parallel. But what I found when I did the PBS special and went out to the neuroscience labs across the globe and interviewed neuroscientists about purpose in the brain and purpose in longevity, I found this truth, that purpose is fundamental. It is not a luxury. Purpose is fundamental to health to healing, to happiness, and even longevity. People who have a reason to get up in the morning tend to live seven to ten years longer. So it's not, and it isn't a luxury during a, a pandemic. Purpose gives people a core to hang on to. During times of change, people tend to go higher and deeper. Higher meaning they step back and look at, wow, what's going on out there? And then they go deeper, what's going on in here with me and what are my my uh, choices and in, in things like that. And so when being a pioneer means that I was talking and writing about purpose way before it became known as a fundamental. Today, most business school leadership courses have pur purpose as a central characteristic. The Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic and other healthcare organizations all and Duke, integrative medicine, purpose is central to integrative medicine. 
So you see that a purpose has become industry agnostic. It's in schools, it's in leadership, it's in health and longevity, aging. And so we have seen that it is fundamental. And purpose, the way I talk about it, as you asked, is is the simple answer to why. Why are you doing what you're doing? What's your aim? And it's why do you get up in the morning, basically. And I learned about purpose in 1968. I spent a week with Viktor Frankl. And I had just gotten out of graduate school in counseling psychology. I'd actually studied him. And fortuitously, everybody on this call has had fortuitous encounters, encounters with people who are, they didn't expect that it would be a life-changing or a game-changer for them. But I, I had found out that he was in San Diego where they were uh, thinking of creating a Victor Frankl Institute. And he was doing a, a five-day program, and that five days changed my life. I had scraped together every penny I had and made it happen and went down there, and you could hear a pin drop for five days when this guy spoke. Mm-hmm. And so the whole business of logotherapy is what he calls it, meaning right. therapy. I mean, those that may not know Frankel, I'll just yeah, say that Frankel, yeah, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. But be, but he was a Viennese neurologist slash psychiatrist in Vienna, Austria, Jewish, during the height of his work in training residents in logotherapy, he and his parents and his pregnant wife and his siblings were all put in a boxcar and shipped to Auschwitz. None of them survived. Only Victor survived. And he was liberated after three and three plus years and he weighed 87 pounds and he went back to Vienna and healed, started to work again and, uh, wrote the book Man's Search for Meaning. And the seminal words that he wrote, uh, you know, to, were basically choice that we all have a choice in in life and we have a choice in in matters and so what he talked about was that choice and uh, what choice do you have in a concentration camp well you have the choice to get up in the morning and give somebody else a hug a kind word a crust of bread a slurp of soup hope for the future hope yourself when you get out of there and so purpose is an aim but it's always an aim directed outside of yourself and making a contribution in some way shape or form to to others and so he said this which i i'll end with relative to that he said don't ask what is my purpose ask this what is life asking of me now in this situation what is life asking of me now and the original title of the book was this it was say yes to everything Say, say, excuse me, say yes to life in spite of everything. Mm. So say yes to life in spite of the pandemic, so to speak. Well, how you do that is what we coaches help people do and try to do ourselves. And we know that we can grow through adversity. We know that as coaches. And we know that as human beings often that, uh, and we need to be reminded of that. that they, they call it now, some people, some researchers have called it, uh, PTG, post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. And so there's a whole body of work around post-traumatic growth that we actually can grow from adversity 
We don't want adversity. No one wants to be in a concentration camp or get COVID or anything else. However, some people grow and others don't, and so that's the distinction. So can you help us think about how one makes that choice? I mean, purpose both is a choice, and it's a it's an aim, as you say. And it Purpose is a choice, so mm-hmm. that would be a mindset. A mindset yep. that, yes, I do have choice. Purpose is an aim, meaning it's outside of ourself. It's a direction we take with our life and our livelihood and our gifts. And right. the third thing is purpose is a verb. It's a mm-hmm. practice. It's not something you write and put on a wall or you do a, a eulogy at a funeral, although those are positive and po- possible. But it's there are 1,441 purpose moments in a day. 1,441 chances to make a difference in one person's life during that minute, during that moment. And I talk about purpose as practice, a verb. And there are two practices, and then I'll share a formula. But practice number one is called the morning practice. And that is when we get up in the morning, it takes two minutes to do this practice. When you get up in the morning, pause. That's step one. Pause means no technology. Don't let, don't let your phone or your computer hijack that moment. Step two is take three deep breaths. And that's a centering practice to center yourself and remind yourself of the choice you're making. Step three is determine what, with intention, as you look at out over the up and coming day, how you want to make a difference in one person's life that day. Just one person. You don't have to be save the world and then make the commitment to do that. So the morning practice is something that I've done for years and I do religiously and teach others just like I did now. It's it, And you try that for a week and you'll get a kind of a, what I would call a felt sense of purpose as opposed to a concept. It turns purpose can be a nice concept. But when you feel that and you actually activate that like a verb and do that during that up-and-coming day, there's a felt sense that life feels better and you feel healthier and more alive in certain ways. The second practice is the evening practice. And the evening practice is before you go to bed at night, you review how you did that day. And the way to do that is I would request that people who are listening to this Take out a post-it when they get a chance and write on that post-it two words, grow and give. That is the universal default purpose. As a pioneer in the purpose movement, people say, well, you know, what if you don't have a purpose? I said, if you have a pulse, you have a purpose. And so let me give you the universal default purpose that the research points out, and that is people who are growing and giving – are living purposefully and living purposeful lives. And so if you write grow and give on a post-it and you put it on your mirror, before you go to bed that night, ask yourself, how did I grow and give today? Mm-hmm. And uh, and do that for, so you have an evening practice and a morning, a morning practice and an evening practice, and those will take you down the path of purpose. And um, so that's, Two practices that are easy, simple, and very doable. You know, and what it hits me as, it's it's part of 
I mean, it's another term, but kind of living your legacy. I mean, I think if you focus on growing and giving and and are intentional about it, it sounds like then every day there's that sense of, you know, being able to feel centered and part of the world and kind of doing something outside of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I have a friend who has a, um, when you call and he's not there, uh, his colleague, and you, his answering machine message is this, at the sound of the tone, please leave your answer to life's two eternal questions. Who are you and what do you want? <laughs> now, that's kind of brilliant because that's really what it's, what you get, what it gets down to for us is who are you and what do you want? Well, what most people want is two things. And most of the research on purpose points this out. The two things are to belong and to matter. They want to belong, meaning feeling connected to others, connected to community, connected to tribe, and they want to matter. They want to leave their dent, their mark. And that's full stop. The research points that out, whether it's the Harvard study of adult development or whether it's other the science the neurologists are looking at and that I'm doing and and, and, and others. And so when uh, even Googling purpose, when you Google what's my purpose, that gets more hits than what's how do how do I become happy? Purpose now has transcended happiness in Google search. Well, what's that all about? I think during times of stress and change like the pandemic we're in now, I do believe that people are yearning to belong and to matter and, of course, to stay safe and all of that. So we could go into a lot of different things. But, but I think that um, that purpose is central to health and healing. So can you say maybe more about that? Because, you know, I mean, it, it isn't a luxury. Purpose is not a luxury during a pandemic. And and as you said before, and I think the two practices you've mentioned will help. But other thoughts on how people can 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 achieve this post traumatic growth and to yeah. uh, you know to develop the purpose during this unsettling uh, time. Well, let me say that the science of purpose. Before I give kind of a formula, but um, the science of purpose, science and faith both both agree. But there's one. At Johns Hopkins, there was a, a researcher, Dr. Majid Fatui, when I was interviewing him, who held up a pill. So picture a doctor holding up a pill. And he said, Richard, do you see this pill? He said, would you, would you buy this? And I said, so what does it do? And he said, well, we know that this pill will reduce the effects uh, significantly, the effects of dementia and Alzheimer's, will reduce the incidence of macroscopic stroke by 41%, will help improve sleep sleep apnea symptoms, and will add 7 to 10 years to your life. Would you buy that pill? And I said, well, yeah, who wouldn't? And uh, uh, But, I mean, who could afford it? And is there really one? And he smiled and he said, you know, the, this pill exists today. It's called purpose. He said, we now know that people who have a reason to get up in the morning over time not just one day, over time, rewire their brains that we can actually measure and we can measure post-mortem from people who died in their brains that actually it, it has physical, biological effect on the brain. And so 
there's a lot of things like the telomere effect right now. Telomeres are those little things that are on the end of every one of your DNA and your body. Right. When people, when their telomeres shrink, they age faster and disease, don't recover from disease as quickly. When those telomeres, and I taught with the woman who won the Nobel Prize for discovering this, it's called the telomere effect. When those telomeres grow or sustain over time, you live longer and age more effectively, I'll say. We're all aging since we're born, but, uh, but we age with more effectiveness. So we're learning more every day about the science behind all this. But the practicality is, is so that's why I say it's fundamental. You know, it's, we're, we're learning all the time. That it's not just a nice thing or, or a, a, uh, a luxury. So if we unpack purpose and look at it, the formula, I call it the napkin test. Because people will often say, you know, they're so busy today. And not just today. They're so, they've been busy the last years. They'll say, Richard, you're so supposedly this purpose pioneer. Got a minute? Can you tell me what to do with the rest of my life? Can you tell me what my purpose is? And I said, well, if you only got a minute, take out this napkin and draw and jot down this on your napkin. G plus P plus V equals C. So G, the letter G, stands for gifts. The letter P stands for passions. The letter V, is in Victor, stands for values, equals the letter C, which stands for calling. If you get up in the morning and you use your gifts on something that you feel passionate about, in an environment that is a good fit for you and your voice, healthy for you, you've got a fighting chance of living purposely and working purposely. And calling is another, is a vocational term for purpose in, in, in certain ways. And so when I work with, with people, and that was the heart and soul of PBS special I did that was shown in hundreds of cities across the country. Mm-hmm. And people, I still hear people say, that's so simple. But how do you actually know? When I did that, I realized that I was off. I wasn't using my gifts. I didn't know my gifts. So a gift is really something that is a, a talent and that has four characteristics to it. A gift is something you love to do. Secondly, a gift is something that others observe you loving to do and often doing, most often doing effortlessly and superbly. And a gift is something that, number three, you can't recall learning. It's been with you your whole life. And four, you love learning more about it and being hanging out with people who are who have similar gifts. So when I developed a tool called the Calling Cards, and wrote a book about that called Work Reimagined, mentioned in other books I've written. But I found that people, the calling cards were like magic for people because they intuitively knew about their gifts. But when you can't recall learning and it's been with you your whole life, you might undervalue it rather than give it high value. Oftentimes people see it in you because they don't have that gift themselves. 
and therefore they give it a higher value, they put value on something they don't own, they don't have themselves. And so gifts are paired of piece of the puzzle, a sure sign, you know, the three sure signs of purpose are first gifts, second passions. So let me stop the, the gifts thing that pretty clear about, you know, that I, I hope most people on the line are because oftentimes when I, if I'm in an, an audience and I can see people, I say, how many of you have brothers or sisters? And they'll, most people, but not everybody raises their hands, about three quarters of them. And I'll say, are your brothers and sisters gifts the same as yours? And there's laughter. They said, no, no, not even close. I said, when did you start to notice that they were different than you? Oh my gosh, right, you know, way back when I was a kid. So these these gifts, we're, we're not sure exactly, Dory, whether we were born with them, but we know that, that pretty much clear certain dispositions come with birth and gifts are part of that. Then passions are what do you really care about? What makes you cry? What makes you sing? What makes you, what energizes you? What drains you? If you use your gifts, your most enjoyed gifts, on things you really feel caring about and curious about, then that's another sure sign that you're on to a purposeful existence, purposeful life, or a purposeful work. I know that um, I had a conversation backstage with the founder of TED, not the current owner of TED, you know, TED Talks. Right. Richard Saul Richard Saul Warman, who's the founder of TED back in the eighties, we're backstage. He's in his eighties, by the way, and and I'm in my seventies. And he he uh, we're backstage, and he says, Richard, what are you going to be talking about? And I said, purpose. He kind of shrugged, and I said, well, Richard, what are you going to talk about? He said, curiosity. He said, don't you think curiosity is this kind of the heart and soul of purpose? And I said, yeah, absolutely. If you're not curious about life, about others, about some thing it doesn't have to be a cause but something you care about could be a product could be a service you're not and he said ted is watched by billions of people and it's people people are innately curious and school never ends classroom is everywhere like long learning right (laughs) yeah yeah well i now call it long life learning long yes because Because we've got a longer life. So, the, the you know, what are you passionate about or curious about? Mm-hmm. Third is values, the V. And values really is another word for culture or environment. Because if you're using your gifts on something you care about, then oftentimes the number one knockout factor is where you do it and who you do it with out there in the world. And as you probably know, and many coaches and others know, that the research on careers shows that oftentimes, most often, people don't actually leave companies or organizations. They leave cultures. They leave places that they don't have a voice, that they don't feel like they fit. And they look for a place doing exactly what they're doing before, but where they've got a better fit, where they've got a voice in, in, in matters. So that's, so that's the V. So I'll, I'll stop there just, just to say that, that that's, that's a napkin test, hmm. but if you really want, if you really want to know about it, you do your homework on that, and then you look at your calling card. Finally, 
And you say, you know, if you have a calling card, that sometimes people do, sometimes you don't, but most people know what that is. In the front of a calling card says how to get a hold of you, what your title is. But, you know, what do you do, which is what that says, is a dangerous question because it really pigeonholes you. What you really want to know is what's on the back of your card. What re- what do you really care about? What are you really passionate about? What do you really bring to the front of a card? What's the who you bring to the what? And on the back of my calling card, it says unlock the power of purpose. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say that that is not just what I do for a living. That is who I am. I have been since I don't day one curious about why people do what they do, particularly in the work world and the retirement world. And so unlock purpose is different than discover purpose. And that's what the pioneering part of the purpose movement mm-hmm. is about. It's not out there to be found in a cause or in something out. It's in here, inside, waiting to be unlocked. But we have to do our homework to do that. So let me stop there. I think that's so wonderful. And it, it gets to the point where, you know, so, so often people say, well, I don't have a purpose or, you know, I don't have a big P of a purpose. And, you know, but, right. but the idea of curiosity and just what interests you is what can get us more inside and free us up. And it's just, I mean, you are the epitome, the epitome of it, I guess is the word, you know, the embodiment, embodiment of it, of living yeah. your calling in a sense and helping yeah. other people open to it. It's just, it's, it's so lovely well, it's, to hear. It's, it, yeah, and it's now in the zeitgeist. It's in the popular yeah. culture out there. Bruce Springsteen just came out with a new album and a new show, Letter to You, it's all about purpose and purpose in aging mm-hmm. and purpose in life in certain ways. And so I'm not, you know, he's, I mean, it's a very thoughtful uh, piece, mm-hmm. whether you like his mu- music or not. But German philosopher Schopenhauer said that every new idea goes through three stages. Because people say, oh, Richard, you're so lucky you hit this aging thing just right with your work and everything. And I said, well, yeah, 40 years later. And uh, <laughs> But Schopenhauer said, the three stages that every new idea goes through are, first of all, ridicule. And I've, I've had plenty of ridicule, like purpose. I mean, give me a break. Get a life. Get, just make a living. Get a paycheck. And then secondly is uh, opposition, sometimes violent opposition, meaning pushback on new ideas. And then third, self-evident. Well, I think now purpose is self-evident. Whether or not you feel you have one that you love, you love, I think it's self-evident that it's important. Having a reason to get up in the morning, having a why is increasingly, and the science helps that, self-evident. And uh, so I think I've had a little tiny bit to do with that in languaging that for people. But I'm a, a learner. If you go on my website, richardleiter.com, the first thing you'll see is an incomplete manifesto for purpose. It's the 10 things I believe about purpose that I've learned. And I call it an incomplete manifesto because, first of all, every movement needs a manifesto. So I created one. But it's incomplete because I'm still a learner. 
future belongs to the learners, not the knowers. And I want to be part of that future as a learner, not just a knower. So it sounds like that's going to be something that's important for people to look at. So again, richardleiter.com is the website you mentioned. I want to incorporate some people's questions, and I also want you to tell us sort of how your journey has led you, and I think you've been talking a little about it, of this new book that you've written. But one of the questions from Elizabeth in Durham says, how can you overcome clinical depression to grow and give? Do you have a sense of how to respond to that? Well, you know, as a coach, I don't do drive-by coaching, so I don't know. Right. <laughs> Elizabeth, everybody's an experiment yeah. of one. Right. But I also know this, that isolation is fatal. And going it alone and feeling that way, oftentimes it's getting out and giving to somebody makes you feel, even in a small way, like in the concentration camp. And by the way, the Man's Search for Meaning would be a good read for that. But the Man's Search for Meaning is listed by the Library of Congress. Our U.S. Library of Congress is one of the 25 most influential books that have influenced American thought. Now, that's pretty amazing because most that's the only book like it there. But I think the point is that getting out and giving oftentimes changes the game for people. And so it depends on how clinically depressed we're talking about or, you know, how isolated. And the other thing is to, is to make sure that you have a committed listener. I would not coach anybody. For all the decades I coached, I had a couple rules that I never violated. Number one is you are always the expert in you. I'm not the expert in you. And uh, so I need to be a better listener at all costs to you. Secondly is that if you don't have a sounding board to talk with when you leave my office or leave our session, I won't coach you. And so I'll help you create a sounding board. But on your sounding board, you need at least one committed listener, somebody who practices care versus cure. They're not fixing you. They care enough. Tell me more, Elizabeth, about your story. Tell me more about you. Secondly, they another so a committed listener is someone who really interested versus always trying to be interesting, telling you what they would do if they were you. They're not you. You're an experiment of one. But don't go it alone. Other people on your sounding board are wise elder, somebody who's maybe 10 years older than you, who's been down these paths, who can share the journey with you or could be in some ways an exemplar for, for you. And the third is to have a wise younger, somebody who's younger than you and asks you different kinds of questions and poses more of an intergenerational viewpoint. Fourth thing on your sounding board is a pet. Oftentimes I found people really come out of their shell with a pet. I know my wife Sally is just like a cat whisperer. Those cats are just <laughs> like so crucial and critical and make her so happy. And so sometimes a pet knows more about you than anybody else. And I'm, but that's that's another example. So that's one way one way to look at yeah. that Elizabeth's question. Great, thank you. And Alan from uh, Florida says, purposeful aging is good for the individual, but many of our businesses and institutions still practice entrenched ageism, so it becomes frustrating, discouraging, uphill battle for the older person with a purpose. How can we combat this? 
write a book about it, get out and speak about it. I don't have an easy answer. Aging is not a disease. It's a choice. And how we we know that how we feel affects how we age. And I go back, Carl Jung said uh, this. He said the greatest damage you can do to others, kids in particular, but is your own unlived life. So the starting point is to act your age, meaning act the way you feel, not the way that your chronological age says you, you, you should be. It is one of the last ageisms. And when people say to me, Richard, can't you retire? When are you going to retire? I said, I'm never going to retire. Why would I retire when, when I get to do the things I love and continue to do them? And, um, no, retirement's just a, a number. And so the word that you don't want to use is still. Oh, Richard, you're mm-hmm. still writing. Richard, you're still doing podcasts. Richard, you're still climbing mountains. You're still trekking in Africa. You're still, still, who gets to determine that rule? Many times today we see many models of people who are exemplars for purposeful aging. So it is, Alan, I agree totally, ageism is alive and well. We have to, first of all, be our own messengers. And and secondly, challenge it. When people say, oh, you're still, and they'll say, oh, Richard, you really look good for your age. And I'll say, well, you do too. You know, I just turn turn it back on them or um, things like, like that. So I don't have a, yeah. an answer, but I, I do believe this book, this new book, Who, who Do You Want to Be When You Grow Old? The subtitle is The Path of Purposeful Aging. And it's got story after story about people who, are, who broke the code on ageism. And uh, they're not all famous entrepreneurs, you know, things that they're regular, real people, and, but who have chosen to follow their fascinations and act their age. And, and it has, in a lot of ways, riffs actually on the question that young people are often asked, and maybe you were asked when you were younger, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm-hmm. Which is a bad question because who, who knows, you know, after what's your name and where do you go to school and what do you major in? You know, it's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, how do people know that? And without, without experiences. So we flipped what to who and up to old. And we are stand for owning being old and, and enjoying it in certain ways. And we know there's issues with it, but there's also growing whole when we age. How do we grow whole? How do we open up new parts of ourselves that heretofore we didn't have the time, the energy, or the resources for. And so that's why the default purpose is grow and give. And, uh, you know, the, the question is, how old do you feel? And uh, oftentimes people today will say, whoa, well, I'm 75, but I really feel like 50. Well, act your, act your age then, act the way you feel. So, Kip, can you give us a few examples from the book? I'd love to hear a little more about the book. And a number of the questions are sort of about getting older, just to incorporate a few of the questions into it. If, well, well, before maybe we get into what Kathleen from Boston says, what if one has an abundance of curiosity in too many areas of interest? Do you have any advice on how to sharpen one's focus 
of what's the most important curiosity. One could think about that as we're getting older, too, of the who we want to become, because there are many life stages. So I wonder if you could maybe respond to that, maybe in relation to the new book, too. Yeah, let me respond to that in relation to the old book, first of all. Okay, great. (laughs) A passport. But for for five years, I was the curator. I had an office in Washington, D.C. at AARP, and I was the curator of AARP's think tank, think and do tank, on the future of aging. And it was called Life Reimagined, and the Life Reimagined, I was the curator of the Life Reimagined Institute. That's where a lot of this thinking on aging came from, but I've been a student of it for years, but I really honed my craft there. And, and co-authored a book called Life Reimagined. And Life Reimagined has six practices in it to answer the question. The six practices on how to hone that curiosity or focus that. Six practices are these. They don't have to go in linear order, but I'll give them in six steps. First is to reflect. And we've done doing some reflecting on this call, and I'm sure many people reflect on what matters, what's really important, and what do you care about, and gifts, passions, and values, and all those. Secondly, connect. Talk to and have a sounding board with others about what you're thinking about. Third step is explore. Take time to open new doors. Look at new, close old doors, open new doors, but take the time to get out and explore. You know, there's the, uh, there used to be an adage that said, uh, uh, if you don't go, you don't know. Well, now there's ways to go online, et cetera, but oftentimes we need to do, do exploration. And I know I did, I actually did work with the guy who founded the Discovery Channel, which is all, John Hendricks, is all about discovery and exploration and that curiosity about explore. Fourth is choose. With your explorations, make the commitment to one or two things that you want to dive more deeply into. You can always close that door, but go further into it. Make a commitment to learn something about it or apprentice yourself, shadow somebody, do something to move forward. Fifth is to repack. Repack means what do you need to do to make, if you want to go further now, what do you need to let go of? You know, no is a complete sentence. What do you need to say no to? Unpack and repack. It could be you need to let go of old relationships, need ways that you're spending money, and you might need to save money, et cetera. And then the final thing is act, and that is take one step forward. So we found that those six practices are the six chapters in the Life Reimagined book with stories about that. And people start all over. I still have people post PBS special, which was several years ago. I still get emails from people who are repacking and Mm -hmm. said that was so valuable because I realized I had to really simplify my life. I had to start letting go of things, my stuff, plus things on my calendar, plus relationships in order to have the room and the energy and the wherewithal to repack to do what I really want to do. So I'm not saying it's easy, but those six practices work. The process works if you work the process. So that's one way to think about it. I think that's really helpful. And actually, it it answers the, the, a number of questions from people, some really good questions. But I think your six steps have have really gotten into that about 
you know, the curiosity and the action and different ways of shadowing, of, you know, trying to, to, to open and explore rather than focus on sort of deficits, I guess, is, is how some people have it. One, one question in particular says that, that sometimes people just get stuck in what they can't do rather than they, what they can do. So, I mean, I think you, your six steps sort of speak to that a little bit, but any other ideas of how to help people kind of get out of their own way in a sense and open to, to that further exploration? Uh, well, I think that the, uh, one of the chapters in the book is, am I living a default? This is in my new book now. Uh-huh. Who do you want to be when you grow old? But one of the chapters is, am I living a default life? And oftentimes people find themselves at a certain age, kind of that ageism thing in, in certain ways where they're feeling like they're living a default life. And uh, the default life is often the mindset of a linear life. It's to grow up, get an education, work, retire. And the linear life is really dead for mo- most people these these days. That It's, it's changing. The game is, is really changing. And the question then is the other chapter that follows on that one is, so how do I live the good life? My co-author, David Shapiro, who, who wrote this new book, it's my 11th book and it's our sixth book together, mm-hmm. three bestsellers. We wrote a book called Repacking Your Bags, Lighten Your Load for the Good Life. That book has been through three editions, one million copies sold, over a million copies sold in 20 languages, and it's all about living the good life. So now we're living the good life in later life. And the good life is this. Are you living in the place you love with the people you love, doing the work you love, whatever that work is. It could be creative work or volunteer work. It doesn't have to be paid work. On purpose, will reason to get up in the morning. So what we found was that beyond health and money, these are the four critical factors living a good life. Place is place. And oftentimes people find themselves living in the place, which means not only the geographic place, but the home, the house, the surroundings, etc. And um, and they relook at that. With the people they love, meaning uh, as we age, sometimes or oftentimes, our relationships shift. And people die, or people part, or we move, or things happen, and we retire, and it's no longer the same work people. So we relook at work, I mean, at, at people and tribe. And the third thing is right work, and that's that napkin test. Gifts, passions, and values are cradle to grave. They're not just for a job or a career or even a paid calling. It has to do with bringing our gifts forward. And then purpose. And the the research shows that the happiest time of life often is beyond midlife. It's in the aging space. There's so much research now that I'm privy to and part of. It's called the U-curve, the letter U-curve, that the peak of emotional life is post-50 into the 60s and 70s and 80s, where people are turning often the midlife crisis into a a new kind of a calling or a new kind of a, a, a life and growing whole and wanting to stay relevant. Think about this, Dory. You remember the book Passages? Mm-hmm. Yep. Passages came out 44 years ago. 
It was on the bestseller list for years, helping to define the decades that we didn't know that much about. We knew a lot about adolescence, but we didn't know a lot about adult life. And she, Gail Sheehy, was a writer, journalist who used the research from the Harvard study and others to, to craft a new narrative. And that's what I'm doing is trying to craft mm -hmm. a new narrative for growing whole and looking at the really how to stay relevant and how to keep growing and let go of that it's actually can be better with age. Hard to believe, mm -hmm. better with age. And that's what we found in the stories and the research that we did in the interviews we did with for this book. It's, so what are the other chapters? Um, it sounds so good just to tell us what some of the chapter titles are because it's already, I think, piquing everybody's interest about the default life versus the good life versus how to, how to develop. I mean, well, in, a, in a sense, well, first, it's a, a new identities in a sense, yeah. growing whole. But go ahead. Yeah. Well, the first chapter is after choose introduction about what this is all about, choosing the path. First chapter is old, who me? It's really looking at your mindset. And then the ch second chapter is if we all end up dying, what's the purpose of living? So we look at purpose from a cradle-to-grave process. And then another chapter is am I having a late-life crisis? Because the midlife crisis we know a lot about, but they're also, you know, when you're living three decades longer, there's often a late life crisis that I still don't know who I want to be when I grow up. I still don't have the, I'm still not living in the place I love with the people I love, doing the things I love with purpose. And so we, we, we have a quiz in there, tips on late life crisis. And then a uh, very poignant chapter is, will I earn a passing grade in life? And it's a story about a person who I interviewed in depth who's got ALS and who's in the sixth year of ALS. And the interview is stunning about purpose. It's kind of like the Viktor Frankl thing, but person with ALS. And he said, I just want to earn a passing grade in life. And we look at that from the inside out. And then how can I grow whole as I grow old? Well, you know, everyone's growing older, but not everyone's growing, el getting elder, growing elder and really learning how to be an elder. And then uh, one of the chapters is an in-depth interview with Parker Palmer. And many people may know and love Parker Palmer's work. I've known Parker for years. He's endorsed the book, and his story is in this chapter. And the chapter is called, How Will My Music Play On? He's 81, and looking at, if you look at Parker's new website, it's about how will my music play on. And so... So those are a few of chapter titles. Thanks for asking. Sounds wonderful. So where's I mean, there's so many good questions here, but it's there's just not enough time because I know we have to end right on the hour. But but let me just ask you, where's your journey taking you next? And do you ever think of retiring? And you know what? Where are you? <laughs> I don't. I mean, I, no, I'm, I don't think of retiring. Uh, I want to retire retirement. There's a, there's a notion <laughs> right. for those that choose. There's some that, that need to retire, and they've had a tough, right. tough and physically tough life, et cetera. But, but it's a choice that oftentimes people really don't want to make when they're living longer with more vitality. And so I'm basically writing and speaking. I'm mm -hmm. as busy now in the COVID world doing these mm -hmm podcasts and Zooms and doing the writing and uh, 
I found that there is a huge, huge interest in healthcare and in all kinds of fields in positive and purposeful aging. The longevity revolution is alive and well, and so I want to play full out, continuing to do what I'm doing. I still plan to, although I've put it on hold, obviously continue to lead my walking safaris in Africa that I've done for mm. over three de- three decades. And, uh, you know, I, I take good care of myself, but I don't take anything for granted. You know, we, mm. as we get older, things happen. My journey is continuing to, to be relevant, and I find that I, that when I get up, I just I call it golden hours. But I love just closing the door and writing and thinking and and creating and so creating content, speaking about it, is you know on helping uh, others unlock the power of purpose. But I really want to change the narrative on aging. Much like mm-hmm. passages did. It doesn't have to be a bestseller that way, but making it simple for people, making it accessible for people. And as they get over this ageism thing and really look at life as it could be and the possibilities. And the book is just one part of that. Well, it sounds like a really important part. I'm looking forward to, uh, and maybe you'll come back later after the book's out and we can talk about it more too. Maybe you'll I'd love to. I'd love to dive okay. into some of these things like, the late life crisis, but also, mm. you know, look, looking at some of the real possibilities, growing whole and staying relevant and, you know, being truly an experiment of one and not letting, not being isolated. And so there's a lot for us to learn about all of this and I'm still learning. And that's part of it for me is that I find that if I'm with people who are curious, not about the mm. book and all, but uh, you know, our living kind of a default life, oh, that to me is nothing's worse than being with a person living a default life to me, you know, and I try to avoid that. And that's just the way it is. I want to be with people who are on their own learning edge and they're growing. And I'll, I'll, I'll end with this, my favorite quote, Dory, on purpose. It comes okay. from the American essayist E.B. White. He said this, I arise in the morning torn between a desire to save the world and a desire to savor the world. This makes it hard to plan the day. Well, in all due respect, so I'll say it again, I arise in the morning torn between a desire to save the world and a desire to savor the world. This makes it hard to plan the day. I think it's about both. It's about saving, not literally, but it's about making your mark, your contribution, which is in our DNA as human beings. It's in our DNA. We're born with innate goodness, and we learn and need to repractice that as we age. But saving and savoring can go into one day, into one life, not either or. You don't have to be Mother Teresa or Gandhi or Nelson Mandela. You just have to be you, but make your mark, make your contribution, as well as savor. That sounds like a wonderful way to end. Thank you for having me. But thank you so much for being here with us. Stay well and safe, and I will be in touch about about a, a date after the book comes out. Thanks, okay. Dory. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Revolutionize Your Retirement Radio with Dr. Dorian Mincer. 
To learn more about the resources mentioned on today's show, listen to past episodes, or download our free retirement transition guide, visit revolutionizeyourretirementradio.com.